This message is brought to you by Cornerstone Gospel Church in Frankston, Australia. We're looking at freedom now from the results of the bonds of sin. It's an understatement to say that you and I have all been affected by our sin. That That is an understatement, and uh, but it's a deep truth. And when we get saved, we sometimes neglect or maybe uh, become unaware over time how deeply sin has affected our lives. And so we want to continue with this thought of substantial healing in personal relationships. This is important because God is a personal God, by which we mean he has the attributes of personality. We don't mean that God is whatever you imagine God to be. God is God. And his attributes of personality, though, are revealed to us in attributes of love and communication, in thought, in reasoning, uh, all these kinds of things. And so, as such, we can see that you and I, created in the image of God, or created, as, uh, as one man has put it, to be image bearers, literally, that God has put upon us a a representation of himself in this world, that you and I are to be that. And so we therefore carry also these attributes of God's character in our lives, you know, attributes such as um, thought and, and reasoning and love and communication, these kinds of things. So, in fact, we would safely say that God's personality, and this would be good for you to read through the scripture thinking about this, God's personality is strongly revealed in scripture. God's nature is strongly revealed in scripture. And so it would be good for you to read that and and think about that, consider God's nature and his character as scripture reveals, because God has made us in his Image And so personality is a truly valid part of God's creation of you, your personality. But the truth is that as unique as we are, we're also damaged by sin. And so uh, this is one of the areas that, that requires healing because as, as our personalities are damaged by sin, we also have been or are responsible for for damaging personal relationships along the way. Uh, and this is this is part of the life in which we live. So let's move on from here and let's look into Acts 17, beginning at verse 22. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said... Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed 
anything since he gives to all life, breath and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and men's devising. And Father, we thank you and we praise you for your word. And we praise you that you are the living God, that you are spirit. We praise you, Lord God. We praise you that scripture compels us not to uh, think of you in the form of something that can be carved or drawn or, or, or etched by man's hand because you are far above any of this. And so, Lord, let us uh, revel in your majesty, Lord God. Let us uh, wonder at your beauty as scripture describes you. And Lord, let us stand in awe of you always. Amen. So let's just quickly, I'm going to skim through these points here because we have a lot to get on to. A couple of recent points from last week. This is by no means all of this section on healing of human relationships uh, at all. So we have to see human relationships as being among equals in order for them to provide all that God intends for them to provide. This is sometimes very difficult because mankind is uh, um, often very self-serving and and this requires humility for many people in order to see others as their equal. And, uh, and also, if we uh, see ourselves beneath other people, then uh, that may trouble relationships as it is as well. Are Christians beneath others? Well, there's an element of that that is true that we are because we're called to serve other people. But in human relationships, that's a function. In human relationships, you and I are all creatures. And so we, we uh, come to one another as being equals in the creative order. Now, Schaefer said that lovelessness is a sea that knows no shore, for it is what God is not. And eventually, not only will the other man drown, but I will drown. And worst of all, the demonstration of God drowns as well when there is nothing to be seen but a sea of lovelessness and impersonality. In other words, when you and I withhold the love of God in in relationships properly, when we withhold that, we're going to end up drowning in our own selfishness and, in fact, we're going to uh, rob others from seeing the demonstration of God's love to their lives. Now, we mentioned last week seeing the right or the good in others minimizes 
you and I as individuals, when we, when we see this good in other people, we are humbling ourselves because we're allowing ourselves the opportunity to see people, uh, and, and to, uh, promote, I guess, that which is good about them. And it makes it easier for us to have this proper relationship because we're humbling ourselves by seeing that which is good in others. But there is a dangerous aspect of when we see the wrong or the bad in others because this comes down to what our motivations are. Am I saying that it's impossible for us not to see someone, you know, the wrong in somebody? I'm not saying that at all. But often we're very quick to see the wrong in others because in pulling someone down, we elevate ourselves. This is a a very natural human tendency. And so pride can sometimes be the motivation behind looking for the bad in other people. And it can exalt self. And the dangerous part of that is that it ends up uh, damaging my fellowship with God. And as we said last week, sometimes it's possible when one is right to be wrong. And we talked about the motivation or the attitude behind being right. Uh, and sometimes you'll see that if you get into a, a debate or an argument with someone and you, you're going to be right at any cost, um, that kind of thing. Now, this is not covering everything, obviously. We also talked about loving others means longing for them, that they can be all that God intends for them to be. We're not getting into a positive confession kind of thing, be all that you want to be, any of that. What does God want from your life? What does God intend for you to be? And and so love longs for you and I to take that other person and encourage in them that aspiration and encourage in them that opportunity for them to be what God will call them to be. What what could that be? Who knows? How long's a piece of string? That could just about be anything in terms of function in life. God may call you to to give your life on the mission field. Uh, think of Jim Elliot, for example, um, trying to reach the Indians of South America and uh, the Incas, I think it was. I'm not not 100% sure on that. But he gave his life. He was murdered in the in the process of that. But it opened an, an amazing avenue of ministry for his wife, who went back to those people and forgave them. And as a result of that, a gospel opportunity opened and ministry uh, opened up out of that. Who knows what God will call you to do? I don't know. But all that God could have you be, that is something that I should want for you and you should want for one another, that you and I should want for each other to be all that God can have you be. Anything less then that desire is sin because we're falling into this trap of preferring ourselves before others. And it's a, it's a dangerous thing. 
It's breaking Christ's second commandment, isn't it? To love my neighbor as myself. Because we want the best for ourselves. And so we are to want the best for others as well. We also talked about loving people. And in Christian thought, loving people is not an abstract idea. Christians are not to hide behind the idea of Christian charities as a way of loving people. Now, I just want to clarify that, okay? Because you can be involved in a charity that does fantastic works and you can be loving people in that way. Praise God for that. I'm not saying that's wrong. But what becomes the problem is when Christians think that they can open their wallet, strike, there's nothing there, and and pull out money and put it into a charity and that that is them loving people. And that, that if that becomes the extent of their love for other people, something is wrong with that. Because that's an abstract idea. It's not an idea whereby you and I are then engaged with individuals in the sharing of the gospel or in giving of counsel or prayer or love or, or maybe in, in, in providing something for someone who is, who is facing poverty or difficulty or just being there to, to listen on the other end of the phone as someone unburdens their heart to you. These kinds of things are ways in which you and I can practically do the good works that God has called us to do in Christ Jesus. And so to exercise love to people in this fallen world, it's going to cost you something, just as it did for Jesus. It cost him to exercise love. Okay, so let's let's move on from here. Um, that is by no means a summary of this section of where we're up to. Um, there's a lot in this healing of personal relationships, primarily because we have we've done really well at damaging a lot of relationships before coming to Jesus. Sometimes even after coming to Jesus, we handle things maybe the wrong way. Uh, we can't account. So don't take on the burdens of how other people respond if you are truly settled in your heart that you've behaved righteously and lovingly before God. And if that person has rejected you, I'm not saying that all relationships are just going to be great because you behave like a Christian, right? You may have noticed sometimes that when you behave like a Christian, other people become angry at you. You can't account for how they behave and you can't take that on. But what you have to look at is your motivation and your actions and and have you contributed to their response in an unrighteous way. So that's taking that responsibility on board. So that brings us to this. This is where we left off last week. What happens if someone is hurt by my sin? Well, once we're aware of the sin, because that could be an issue as well, but as soon as we've become aware of the sin, what is our first response? What did... David do when he was confronted with his sin by Nathan the prophet? What was his first response? Where did he go to? He went to God. Alright? So our first thing to understand is when we sin against someone else, if I sin against a brother or sister, my first response is to see that sin is a transgression against God first of all. 
And that is therefore where I am to go first of all, to go to God. This is important. So as soon as we've gone to the Lord uh, then and confessed this sin uh, and, and understand that this sin is under the blood of Jesus, that we are cleansed from all real guilt associated with sin, hallelujah, that we must understand this, that all sin, firstly, is a sin against God. That's the first thing. Get that right. But that brings us into an issue because we could go away from that and say, well, my heart's right with God and we've left a train wreck over there somewhere. You know, we've damaged a relationship. We got convicted. We go to God and we pray about that and we seek God and then we could walk away and we could say, my heart is right with God. So, but we have to understand that when we hurt others, we hurt people who have real value in the eyes of God. People who have intrinsic value because God has created them to have this value. So, each person has real value as God's image bearer. Imagio Deo is, is I think, the Latin of it. The image of God. Man being created in the image of God. So, This is true of Christians and non-Christians. It can be difficult to restore relationships with believers. It can be even more difficult with unbelievers. But every non-Christian you encounter is also a person of equal standing with you. And so... In fact, it may even be more important that those relationships are restored to the best of your ability. To the, you know, with honest and sincere intent on our part. Now, could it be that some sins differ? You know, it could be. The penalty of sin may remain the same. But sins can differ because I could sin in, in a sin that was entirely selfish and, and on the surface it can look like it doesn't affect anybody else. But I can sin relationally with people and that sin has an immediate impact on other people. An immediate impact. And I, I would think that the first one has as well, but it may be something we don't see immediately. And so it could be that the Holy Spirit might, in effect, say to us, well, this sin differs because this sin, yes, is a sin against God, but you've sinned against your brother. You've sinned against your sister here. You've sinned against this person here. And so when we see that we've sinned against another, what is the result? What is the response? And I believe the correct response is that we see the intrinsic value of others and then we endeavour to make it right with both God and the one that we've wronged as much as possible. I I remember talking about this with someone who said, you know, that they explained that the person they sinned against is now dead. And, um, you know, that situation is outside that as much as possible kind of parameter then, you know. And... um, 
But our this becomes a bit of a challenge here because dealing with with sin where I can get on my knees before God and I can deal with sin that I've committed with God. When I go to another person though, and even when I go to that person seeing them as a child of God or seeing them as a creation of God, my corrupted heart is going to battle with that because there is an aspect of humiliation involved in this you know, that's why people have set, made so many jokes about saying those three words, you know. I was... I was... I was wrong. You know, it's it's a bit of a joke. And couples will often uh, joke about that kind of thing, um, you know. and, and uh, um, But that's because we recognize within our social structures, that there there is some humiliation involved in going to somebody and apologising to that person and making things right. I remember in the early days of our marriage, um, uh, one time Suzanne and I, we'd been on, a, on an impact team. I think I've shared this with you before. Um, and so Suzanne's not here today because she's, she's at home crook. And... Um, so you can check this with her later on. She'll, she'll tell you, you know. But, um, you know, we were driving along. It had been a long day for, for me. I think I'd worked the night before and I was in, you know, in charge of the impact team and trying to get them home safely. And so they were all having fun in the car, but I was Mr. Grumpy Guts. And, um, and so I, I told my wife that she should act her age because she was having fun with everyone. Um, and I wasn't, you know, because I was, busy being responsible and driving and um, and so I embarrassed her in front of uh, everybody and immediately I knew that was just dumb uh, it was it was just dumb because it was wrong it wasn't a Christian way to behave and so when we got home um, I you know Suzanne she was she was angry about this and rightly so and so she immediately went and uh, and went to bed and and so I went into the office and, uh, the office, into the other room of our little two bedroom flat that we were renting at the time. And I, and I quickly began to pray and, um, and just talk to the Lord about this situation. And, um, then I, um, grabbed my Bible and, and took it in there. And she thought I was going to come in and preach to her about her attitude. And, um, and I said, you know, to her that, that Ephesians, tells us not to let the sun go down on our wrath. And I said, I'm afraid I'm making you stumble because you're going to go to bed angry, and rightly so, because I was wrong, and I I treated you wrongly, and I said the wrong thing, and I really need you to forgive me, you know, for that. I'm really sorry for what I said. And, um, you know, she she was sitting there, she'll tell you the story, she was sitting there thinking, oh, here he goes, he's going to preach at me, you know, and, uh, and stuff. And, you know, we had a, a really wonderful reconciliation there and I learned a, a powerful lesson about this beautiful lady that God has given me um, and about the willingness to forgive in her heart. But it came out of that, you know, like I was sending her to bed angry with me, 
by my response. And the healing in that was about me humiliating myself there, humbling myself and saying, you know what, I was wrong in the way I behaved toward you. There's no excuses. Don't ever say that stupid two-letter word, if, if I've offended you. What does that mean? That means you don't think you have. And so you, you know, just in case you may have possibly offended that other person and you feel offended, I'm sorry. You know, that's, it's just the, the cheapest and worst way to offer up some kind of pseudo apology that there is. Humble ourselves. Go to God on that issue. Be willing to say to that other person, I am sorry, I have wronged you. Take it on. You know, name what it is. It, it's, it'll be over, the pain will be over just like a tetanus injection. It's going to be over in a couple of moments and the pain will be gone. But the benefits will be lasting benefits. Long lasting benefits. And out of that, I can honestly say to you that Suzanne and I, have built a relationship that is built around honesty with each other whereby we are able to say to each other these kinds of things without any fear of rejection by the other person. Uh, we don't have to stand over one another to make a point. We can just humbly approach each other on any of these things and talk about it because from the early days we established that. And this is about that expression of true equality in the eyes of God. Husbands and wives, different functions, but true equality. There is neither male nor female in Christ Jesus. We both have access to him for salvation. So we don't have to treat each other inequally or unequally with inequality. James talks about this, but It's hypocrisy to seek God's forgiveness and neglect making things right with the person we've offended. Paul says, where possible, be at peace with all people. Where possible. And I think that's really wise words from Paul because he's not under an illusion that everyone can be at peace with everyone in this world. Because there are two hearts involved. But we're talking about our part in the process, aren't we? You know, you should say that to yourself. I'm talking about my part in the process, right? So in James, we're told, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. I love that. You can translate that second half of the verse. The powerful... Hot praying of a righteous man. That's how you can translate that. So, uh, you know, we're not told to confess our faults to a priest or, or a group. Confess to one another. I think if you took the groupness out of this way that we often think and took that down to an individual and if I violated Simon, there's much less need for me to go and confess that to Mark there's much more need for me to go and talk to Simon about it and say, brother, I have offended you. Please, would you forgive me? And seek that restoration. And pray for one another. It's a simple admonition. But in our 
present and imperfect state in which we're in, this is sometimes difficult to obey. Because saying sorry is about entering by the low door. You know, it's about humbling ourselves. Humbling ourselves before God and then endeavouring to take that stumbling block out of that relationship between us and that other person as well. Now, the question is, why is this often so difficult? And I think it's because we, you know, we talked about many, many lessons ago, we talked about seeing ourselves at the centre of the universe. We often have this view of ourselves that we, you know, maybe it's just me, that, that we see ourselves as above others. But should it really be a humiliating thing to seek forgiveness from one that we've wronged? Another human? A person of equal standing? It shouldn't be. It shouldn't really be difficult to do that. I'm speaking to people, aren't I? Here? And we're all made in the image of God. And so there is equality between us. And so, in fact, it is not such a low door. We're going to equals. What it involves is being willing to admit that equality and being willing to admit that we were wrong. And it is right that we should apologise. So I, I think that when we consider these, this kind of idea encapsulated here in these last two points and James and, and this last point here, that sometimes the thing that may prevent us from saying sorry to someone could be pride. You know? Just, just maybe, you know? It might be pride. It, it might be, and if you, if you think about that pride and what's stopping us from apologizing to another, that may be, at the root of that, there may be these thoughts of superiority that we just may be unwilling to admit. And so it could be that inwardly, you know, our hearts are cloaked with a bit of a deception that we're above another person and we don't have to lower ourselves to their standards. Christians experience a difference in all human relationships because of our relationship with God. There is a change in all our relationships. I know people who've come to Christ who are the most caustic, vitriolic, difficult people to be around and they come to Jesus and everything about them has changed where people suddenly begin to love that person who before was just so alienating to everybody around them. Christ has changed their heart. One of the reasons for this is because the value of human relationships increases in our eyes because we see the real value of humans. You and I should 
as children of God, we should be seeing relationships differently because we see people differently. Even unsaved people. And another aspect of this, why we have a difference in relationship, is because selfish gain reduces. Because Christ has preeminence. Have you ever known a person who, who you know, your phone rings and then you inside you go, oh no, what's he going to want this time? You know? And I'm not suggesting that you open yourself up to abuse from people just because you're a Jesus, uh, Jesus follower. But there, there just may be a little bit of that as a Christian, that you and I are to love other people the way we see God loving us. The way scripture reveals God loving us. Now, this means, what we're seeing here, that I can approach a person and say, I'm sorry for this harm that I've done to you. Now, it may surprise you to know that as a young teenage man, um, I was a very, very selfish person before meeting Jesus and uh, that led to selfish encounters in male-female relationships um, and as I was working through um, some messages on this subject one time, I believe God brought to mind uh, a relationship that I had had with a uh, a young lady back then who's now like myself she's she's a grandmother uh, to her own uh, grandchildren um, and I began to realize that you know I had been not extremely uh, nice to her in the relationship I'd treated her selfishly I'd never never harmed her or any such thing I was never violent but I had purposes in that relationship that weren't completely wholesome let's put it that way and uh and so i chased her down on on facebook and uh we had a bit of a discussion via messenger and um and i apologized and asked her to forgive me uh explaining that i'd since become a christian and i looked back on that time with regret uh and just thought that i had not treated her very nicely and and um, she thanked me for that. She said, I'd never thought about it. That's just who we were at the time and uh, and stuff. But she thanked me for even asking for that. And she's not a Christian. Um, but it was, you know, it's a recognition that this person deserves something from me that I should give uh, to her and as God was showing me the, these behaviours of mine, uh, it brought back that situation. We're talking, you know, 30, 34 years ago, 30, 36 years ago. 
but what a blessing it was to be able to just put that behind and, and seek that forgiveness. Why is that? Because Romans declares to us that God is transforming us into the image of Christ. Corinthians declares that God is transforming us from one degree of glory to another degree of glory in Christ Jesus. And so our Christian lives are to be humble before God and as God shows us these things, we should not be treating these other people with disrespect. Oh, I've I've dealt with it with you, Lord. That's under the blood. Let's endeavour to try and uh, restore these relationships, seek forgiveness where we need to. We don't have to wait for some big explosion to go off and that kind of thing and then we'll deal with it. Let's just deal with it. Let's just approach these things. And it may be that that somebody you're around, you've noticed that there's difficulty in the relationship and you know that you seek to uncover what it may be so that you can make things right. Of course, confession to God comes first. But we, after making confession to God, we should endeavour to be at peace with all people where possible. Let's move on. Now, there can be wrong motives in this, just like anything else. So we shouldn't be seeking reconciliation just to be seen of people or of the church you know oh yeah I did this thing wrong and now I've made everything right and you know um, because that's that's an issue of motivation and if you if you want to learn a thing or two about your motivations in your Christian service I'd urge you to um, you know get on the the, the web and, and download Paris Reedhead's sermon. Uh, ten shekels and a shirt. Uh, it's a really tremendous message, and um, if you if you want details on it later, I can I can um, point you to that. But it's reconciliation is not about show. It's not about us. Well, I'm the bigger person. It, it's none of that. It's it's that we're trying to bring the glory of God in this situation. We're trying to do what is right before God in these circumstances. And so uh, this may mean that sometimes, uh, you know, we have to reconcile very old matters, just like the one I told you about before, um, if possible, if possible, uh, that we we go back and we endeavour to try and reconcile these matters from years ago, where we can. And, you know, many times people have renewed and restored good friendships out of, Believers responding rightly to these this direction of the Holy Spirit in these things. But also, we must remember the reality of the crucifixion of Christ. This is vital to you and I in every aspect of our Christian lives, in, in every way in which we walk. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ. You you know this verse, Philippians 2 verse 5. Christ's crucifixion, when the Messiah was crucified, on a hill by a road where people saw him stripped and nailed to a cross, 
beaten for us. They could see not only his pain, but it was intended that he would be shamed. This wasn't done down a dark alley somewhere, in a closed room somewhere, under a shadow somewhere. It wasn't hidden away. The Lord of glory crucified in front of the world around him at that point in time for you and I. So what does this mean? What does being under the blood of Jesus mean to the believer when it comes to these issues with relationship? It means that our confession before God should lead to an openness of our hearts with brothers and sisters. One way for you and I to struggle in the Christian life is that we seclude ourselves and cut ourselves off from other people. Now, um, I'm not saying that we should therefore just live our lives in other people's pockets, so to speak, and make ourselves prone to abuse and subject to abuse by people from within the church, which sometimes happens. Um, and it, it shouldn't happen. Okay, But as the suffering of Jesus was an open event, and it was an open event for a reason that Paul describes in Philippians 2, for the reason that he came to serve us. So you and I are to understand that the cross was the result of Jesus' intention to serve mankind. Okay, That's where it led to. And so if you and I are the servants of God, and Paul called himself the bondservant, the doulos of God, if you and I are the servants of God, we must understand that out of serving God will come times of suffering and difficulty, even in human relationships. Our Christian relationships, while being great blessings and leading to much joy, can also sometimes have passages of difficulty. And if you can't say amen, you you just have to keep living a little longer. If Jesus doesn't come back, I'm sure you'll experience it at some point in time. It happens. Matthew 6, 5 to 15. When you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. That's it for them. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you've shut the door, pray to your Father who is in in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. When you pray... Do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. In this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, 
Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever. forever. Amen. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, realize that the nature of this text differs a little bit because the audience was a Jewish audience under the law at that time and and you and I are a Gentile audience under a covenant of grace in the blood of Jesus. Say amen to that. Hallelujah. Praise God for that. Christ has paid our penalty, the penalty we could not pay. But this places us in a great position regarding our moral responsibility to passages like this because since God in Christ has forgiven you, all right, he has forgiven you. So therefore, Christians have no right to be unforgiving toward others. Easy for you to say, you don't know what I've suffered. No, I don't. But I know what Jesus suffered for you. And I know that in his suffering, he said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. That in the height of his suffering, with all your sin and my sin heaped on Jesus the world's sin heaped on him, he would still have forgiveness for the people who were brutalizing him and putting him to death. And if you and I have come humbly to Jesus and found forgiveness, we can't hold grudges. It's unbiblical. There are two areas that Christians must demonstrate love and communication above all others, and that is in the marriage or the family unit. The Christian family should be different to the world's family. The Christian marriage should be different. It pains me to see Christian marriages that don't have respect for each other, where there's anger and, and, and aggression and bitterness towards one another within that marriage. That's a painful thing because the Christian marriage is supposed to be a representation of Jesus and the church. And the second area is that in, in personal relationships within the church, Man, if our relationships within the church are not better than what's going on out in the world, something is really, 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 really wrong. Oh, I know that there are some great friends out in the world, but the church should be a place where love is experienced and, and, and demonstrated and prayed about and hoped for and lived for, where the genuine Christian love is outlived amongst the body of Christ so that people will be able to marvel at that and fulfill what Jesus said. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love 
one for another. So Jesus takes the community of believers and he says the world is going to recognize something different about you because of the love you have for each other. And come on, you and I know that that particular issue has been a struggle for the church down throughout history. But it shouldn't be. It should not be the case. Of all the places in the world that there should be this great demonstration of genuine love and genuine communication, it should be within the Christian family, marriages and family I mean, and within the body of Christ. Those two areas are to be different to the world. If the demonstration of Jesus' love is not in these two places, then the world can conclude that our doctrine is just dead doctrine. Not that they would think that way, but that in, in essence, that is what they can think. Amen? Love and communication between Christians. It adds this human dimension of relationship that that should not be comparable in the world. And, you know, the world definitely has some, some great relationships. But there's something different about the body of Christ and about Christian families. When man sinned, certain strictures were placed upon man and woman within marriage. God defined certain things in order to give a framework to that marriage within a fallen world. Man was given an office within the marriage. That doesn't mean his house had an office, but... It means that he was given a function within that marriage. He is to be the head of that home, the spiritual head of that home. Now this this structure happens within a relationship of equals. So the man and the woman are equal, but within that marriage of equality, there is this structure that God has placed. And the problem is is that much focus has been given to the potential negative aspects of this structure. You hear it all the time these days. You believe the man is the head of the home and the wife is to serve him. Hands on the sink, woman. You know. But this is a relationship of equality where each person has different functions. (coughs) I don't know if you've noticed, but this world is trying to turn everything upside down. There are people talking about legalised abortion for men. (laughs) Because in their minds, in their minds, these are people with university degrees too, by the way. You know, so they're really smart people. In their minds now, a woman who 
transgenders to being a man should be recognised as a man and so therefore, because she's held on to her natural organs, which were female organs, but that little point aside, if she becomes pregnant, that she is now a he, therefore a man is entitled to an abortion. (laughs) (laughs) Now, this this is a reality. I listened to a person reasoning this kind of logic this week in a speech that he gave. And, you know, this is the reality. This is because people are unwilling to accept that men and women are biologically, psychologically, emotionally different from each other. Different. Of equal standing with different functions. And within the marriage family, God has called the men to be the spiritual authority of that home, an authority to be exercised with love by serving his family, all of them, by serving. It's not about a a demanding of authority over them, you know, woman, get my slippers. It's not that. Woman, make my dinner. You know, you, you might regret that if you're married to a woman who can't cook. You might regret that. So... Cook it yourself. You're not any less of a man by being able to cook. It's nothing of the sort. But this is a union of relationships. So, so man, start to exercise that biblical authority of spiritual guidance to your family. That's what it's about. It doesn't matter who mows the lawns. It's not about that kind of thing or who puts out the bins. Who cares? Get up off your sofa and go and do it. Who cares? And so the world focuses on the potential negative aspects. Oh, that could lead to abuse of authority. Yeah, it could. It could lead to protecting a woman in need, couldn't it? Do you know the least prone person in our society to any form of violence is a married heterosexual woman. Did you know that? That is a statistical fact. A married heterosexual woman is least prone to any violence in our society. But we're led to believe, because of domestic violence reporting, that women are suffering at the hands of men all the time. In fact, uh, confirmed cases of domestic violence this year so far there have been 14 women who've been killed in domestic violence situations there have also been 12 men this year killed by their female partners it's neck and neck in this race I'm afraid it's, it's pretty close you know there have been 5 children killed 3 of those by women and 2 by men so this world is sick and so when we focus on what might be the negative aspects of this, we're not focusing on what God intends for that marriage to bring at all. Marriage is a picture of Christ and his church. And you and I, I'm afraid, we can't, you can try it, it won't work, you can't argue with his authority. 
It's not going to work. He has authority over us. And how did he demonstrate that for us? He gave himself. He gave himself that he might present to himself a spotless bride. And so, husbands, this is where you need to act by giving yourself for your wife and your family in service, in genuine service. Read through Ephesians 5, 22 to 24. We'll close in just a moment. We're nearly there. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the saviour of the body. I I just love reading this verse out because I know it's going to aggravate people. This is what God has called for. Too bad. This is the structure he's put in place. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. To their own husbands. All right? Don't think you can boss my wife around. She won't take it. You know? So she she won't take it. I won't like it. Yeah, that, they won't like it. Yeah, We misunderstand the work of Christ if it's only a legal thing. If we just think about this structure of authority working its way down, we misunderstand. We are called to be in communion with Jesus Husbands and wives are called to have a communion with each other and a love for each other. All wives aren't told to love their husbands. Yes, they are. Read Titus. Let the older women teach the younger women how to love their husbands. Love. You know, I know, ladies, you think you know everything about love, but it just ain't true. And some of us, Because of sin, our ability to love has been corrupted and it needs a little teaching. There is to be real communion and love between Christ and ourselves. Real communion and love between husbands and wives. And if marriage represents the union of Christ and his church... And if it represents the present relationship of Christ as bridegroom and his church as bride. Now, we could just about stop there and ponder that for a little moment. We could go into some very dark areas. If marriage represents the union of Christ and his church, and we could look at some marriages and say, man, it's bad. We could say if marriage represents the present relationship of Christ as bridegroom and the church as bride, we could shake our heads in despair and we could say, woe is us. So aside from what we may see as the present reality, if these things are true, is is this true? If these things are true, then surely marriages should be showing forth joy communication and love. Surely that should be happening. There are many other aspects to marriage, but surely that should be part of what our marriage should be demonstrating. And it it just might require husbands and wives for us to 
approach our spouse and try and reconcile some of these things that are unreconciled. Try and restore some of that love. People often place way too much expectation on a marriage and they think that, you know, I'm going to get married, I found Mr. Right and, you know, we're going to be married and it's just all going to be love, peace and happy juice forever, you know, and and uh, it's just going to be awesome. And so then, you know, the day after they get married, they wake up and they realise, hang, hang on, I wish at this point we could play the song... Um, that song by the, uh, the, the guy, um, you know, out of uh, the, the Gaither oh, thing. Yeah. We'll get it for you. We'll get it for you and play it. Right? It's very, very funny. Um, but sometimes our experience is not necessarily the same as our expectation. And that's because we're looking for something in that person to provide us rather than looking to be the person God wants us to be as that marriage partner, husband or wife. What does God want you to be? Because that's the person you can be responsible for. I don't, you know, as some people say, you know, the husband is the head of the home, but the wife is the neck that turns the head. I don't want my wife to be like that with me. I want our communion to be such that we can we can work on those decisions together. I don't need her to manipulate me into ways that I should behave. And likewise, I should not be trying to manipulate her. Or oh, we're going to get into some deep stuff here. So we'll we'll stop here. We've got a little bit to go in this. Uh, so one more week in this area. Our personal relationships especially in the area of marriage and the area of church, these, as we, how we treat each other as believers. These are two things for us really to pray about, that, that God can grow us in and help us to be a living demonstration of the reality of Jesus to the world around us. I've prayed for many years that God would use our marriage, Suzanne and uh, myself, uh, as a way to demonstrate his love to the people around us. And, you know, we're far from perfect. But, you know, I love her. And I love that God has been able to use us to help other people, which is which is pretty insane for two school dropouts. Um, you know, we, did we get it all right? I can promise you, just talk to Jad for a couple of minutes, you'll know we didn't. You know, um, he'll be able to tell you many things. We didn't get it all right. But we love each other and we still pray that God can use our marriage as a demonstration of his love to other people around us, starting with our family and stretching out from there. So I would encourage you to make that prayer or pray somehow along those lines as well. It's a beautiful thing. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Our Father, we praise you and we thank you here this morning. Lord, help us as believers to demonstrate your love to one another. That just as Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have loved one for another. 
and within our marriage that we might show the world around us how your love functions by being an orderly and a loving marriage filled with joy and love and communication to the glory of your name. And Lord, where we may have gone through life and damaged relationships and now in Christ realising that, help us, Father, to take away the stumbling block of those damages that we've caused by making right where possible with those we've hurt. We praise you and we love you, Lord, that you stepped toward us first to demonstrate love to us in your Son. Help us to do likewise with the world around us. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. You're welcome to duplicate this message in its entirety for non-profit purposes. For more information and resources, visit cgc.org.au.